In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. These uh, epic words are recognized by Christians, non-Christians alike, as the first words of the Bible, found in the first chapter of Genesis. And they are words that just sort of naturally echo as they are read. You know, origin stories, stories of the origination of things, origin stories are a powerful part of the human experience. Uh, you might notice this if you watch the Olympics, for example. Primetime Olympic coverage is about 20% competition and about 80% origin stories. You constantly hear the commentator's voice with some melancholy music depicting the rocky and difficult road that this figure skater or gymnast or whoever it is had to walk in order to get where they're at today. The death or sickness of a family member, overcoming injury or anything else that can ramp up the drama of the moment is used in those settings. And, and people love it. We love it, right? Our love for origin stories goes beyond just popular culture. Most of us, most families have some sort of story, some sort of legend, some sort of tradition that they like to tell, that they like to reminisce about, that they like to participate in as a family that connects them with that which came before them. I grew up hearing about an epic gun battle on the streets of Lewistown, Montana on July 4th, 1884 between two well-known cattle rustlers and outlaws and then some locals who wanted them dead. Historians talk about this. I have a couple books that recount the events of those days, and historians point to, consistently, to uh, one of my uh, distant relatives as firing the first shots on that day on the streets of Lewistown. But of course, as with all of these family legends, discerning fact from fiction can sometimes be challenging. But there's something about knowing, feeling connected with that which came before us that is important to many of us. So there's something about having a connection with those who were our origin, those who contributed to who we became or the events of the past that, that is important to us. In many ways, uh, the book of Genesis accomplishes that for humanity. It gives us anchor points to which we can look back as we seek to understand ourselves and our world. But more specifically, I think Genesis sets the backdrop for all that God would accomplish and do throughout history. More than just the history of humanity, Genesis chronicles the history of redemption, of God redeeming, saving mankind from sin. And, and so today we begin a series of sermons that will take us through this book of beginnings. The name of the book tells us much. In the Hebrew tradition, the name of this book was actually just the first Hebrew word in the book, one Hebrew word that translates into English as in the beginning. The title Genesis comes from a Greek word, which means 
source or origin. And so today I have two primary goals that I hope to accomplish in our time together. First, I want to give you sort of the, uh, the foundational introduction to this book. What do we need to know? What is helpful for us to understand as we begin our time in Genesis? And then second, I want to sort of expound on that very first verse, hopefully gain some insight into how we might be led by the scriptures to love, trust, and worship God more as a result of those first 10 words of Holy Scripture. So let's begin by laying the foundation of our study for this book. And in order to do that, I want to share with you several things that Genesis is and several things that Genesis is not. So let's begin with what Genesis is. First, Genesis is the first of five books of Moses. The books of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy that are in our Bibles, the first five books, make up what many have called the Book of Moses or the Pentateuch or sometimes the Torah. These books are widely understood to have been authored by Moses himself. There are references from the New Testament that support that. Most historians agree that Moses was, of anybody, best positioned and best educated to have compiled these five books. Although we also know that Moses wasn't the only one who contributed to the Pentateuch. For example, the final chapter of Deuteronomy tells us of the death of Moses. And so we can be pretty confident that Moses didn't write that final chapter of Deuteronomy. But we, I think, can all agree that Moses was likely the primary author. There were others involved along the way in the process. It's also important to mention when we are speaking of Genesis specifically, out of the Pentateuch, that, that Moses didn't live any time near the events of Genesis. So Moses was born a couple of centuries after the end of Genesis. It's important for us to realize. That means that the gap of time, think about this, the gap of time from Moses back to, let's say, the days of Noah. So that the amount of time from Moses when he was writing uh, the Pentateuch to the days of Noah, that was about somewhere around a 1,500-year time span. And if for conversation's sake we will agree that there were no, uh, or, or we'll assume that there were no generational gaps, no gaps in the genealogy, we can conservatively say that there's a, at least a 2,500-year gap from the children of Adam and Eve until Moses wrote these words. So think about that. Let's say you were going to sit down and write some family history from 2,500 years ago. Very first time that it was written down, you'd be writing about events that were taking place during the reign of Queen Esther. Think about that time gap. The Old Testament story of Esther took place roughly about 2,500 years ago from today. So that same distance that separates us from Esther separates Moses from some of the events about which he's writing. It's important for us to recognize. It's safe to say that unlike the other four books that Moses wrote, Moses didn't have firsthand knowledge or experience with anything that took place in Genesis. And so that forces us to wrestle with some questions. 
from where did Moses get his information? After all, Genesis doesn't present itself as an oracle or a revelation or a grand vision that Moses had one day. That's not how it presents itself. It presents itself in much more of a narrative form than it it does an oracle or a revelation. Uh, Most of the chapters of Genesis, at least once we get past Genesis 11, seem to be very much solidly in what we would call narrative, historical narrative. And so I think there are some items that we have to think about as we explain Moses' authorship of Genesis. For one, Moses seems to be recording and writing down some of the oral tradition of the Hebrew people. As in all cultures, there are stories and accounts of things that happened in previous generations that persist, that are told and retold. All of us have lived our lives in in an era in which we have the printing press. There are books that you can purchase. You think about life previous to the printing press, previous to mass production and dissemination of of information, there was a strong emphasis in almost all cultures, in, in the cultures of the indigenous people who lived in our part of the world, and in other ancient cultures, strong emphasis on oral tradition, on recounting and even memorizing the stories of what happened before us. So, so Moses, uh, in, in some of what we read in Genesis, is certainly uh, writing down on paper, sometimes perhaps for the first time, uh, the oral history of the Hebrew people. Another piece of this discussion that that we need to think about is that we know for sure that there are other lost books that Moses refers to. One specifically that, that we know with absolute certainty, Numbers 21 verse 14. Moses says this, or the scriptures say this, it says, therefore it is said in the book of the wars of the Lord. So in Numbers, there's this reference. Moses references the book of the wars of the Lord. This long lost book called the book of the wars of the Lord. And when Moses wrote the word Lord, this is important. When he wrote the word Lord in Numbers 21.14, he wrote the word Yahweh. That's important because it's not a generic Lord of which he's speaking. It's not a, a book about some generic wars. This is a book specifically pertaining to Yahweh. It's the name that's only attributed to the God of the Bible. Why is this important? Because it seems that there, were at least, there was at least one ancient book that cataloged some of the history of the Hebrew people with which Moses was familiar. We can assume that there were probably others, but most scholars believe that Moses had access to at least a number of historical books and documents that detailed, that chronicled the history of the Jewish people. And then finally, we we get to the, probably the most important of these three thoughts on uh, Moses' authorship, and, and that's that we can't forget that all of scripture has a divine author, the Holy Spirit who inspires the writing. Second Peter chapter 1, we read of this relationship between the human authors of Scripture and the divine author, when Peter says that the Holy Spirit carries along the human author. And so there are most certainly aspects of this book that came from, no, from Moses' information and study, but also there are cert- most certainly aspects of this book that came purely from the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. 
But this reality that Genesis is one of five books that come to us from Moses is important because it places it in its context. It's not just a a solitary book out on its own. It's within a specific context, a context of God establishing his plan to deliver his people from sin. Genesis has a very specific context in that revelation. Second, what is Genesis? Genesis is the foundational text of the story of God's redemption. In our time in this book, we will experience so many themes that are, that are right at the center of God's story of redemption. Sin and sacrifice and worship and substitution and wrath and provision and blessing and promise and so many more biblical themes that have their source, their origin in Genesis. What I think you'll find is that Genesis provides much of the vocabulary, much of the imagery upon which the rest of the scriptures build and expand. But not only is this true of these general themes like substitution and wrath and God's love, but it's also true of the very people through whom would come salvation to the world. We start Genesis with no sense of humanity, and we end Genesis, by the time we complete our time in Genesis, we have a very distinct people group, a very distinct nation through whom God would bring his salvation into the world. So that's the journey of time that we will be in uh, here in Genesis. Uh, Just think about the New Testament. Paul's sort of theological magnum opus in the New Testament, the letter to the church in Rome. Romans really serves as much uh, as the source, as the origin of much of Christian theology. Uh, If you read uh, systematic theology textbooks, Romans is probably the most often quoted uh, epistle. But so much, if you read Romans, so much of Romans has its origin in Genesis. Especially if you, if you look at, for example, the first five or so chapters of, well, really six chapters of Romans. So many themes that tie directly back to what we'll be talking about in Genesis. All right, Genesis is the first of five books of Moses. It's the foundational text of the story of God's redemption. And third, Genesis is as much theology as it is history. I think perhaps this might be best illustrated by thinking about the the scope and expanse of time that I explained a bit ago. Genesis covers thousands of years in 50 chapters, about 32,000 words. So it's a big book, right? 50 chapters, 32,000 words. As far as biblical books go. It's not the largest, but it's up there. You can compare that, for example, though, and I think this is helpful, with on our bookshelf at home, we have Ron Chernow's biography of Alexander Hamilton. Uh, Some of you have seen the the Hamilton, the musical. This biography of Hamilton by Chernow uh, served as the impetus, the inspiration for the musical. Chernow used uh, over uh, over 200,000 words to introduce us to Alexander Hamilton. Hamilton lived into his upper 40s, not a particularly long life by today's standards. So Chernow used over six times as many words for a 49-year span of Hamilton's life 
six times as many as what Genesis gives us for a much, much longer span of time. So as far as history is concerned, when we think about Genesis as history, it's a, it's a very brief history of the time span of which it covers. And yet there are some very consistent themes that we find in the book. It is a very theological book. I'll share one brief example, and that's uh, regarding the word seed or offspring. It's mentioned in, uh, when I ran a search, it's mentioned in Genesis 59 times. It's a much higher rate than anywhere else in the Old Testament. We see it so clearly uh, in Genesis chapter 3 when God uh, shows up in the garden and he's sort of pronouncing his judgment and, and he promises that the seed of the woman, the offspring of the woman, would crush the head of the serpent. And then that it, it continues from there and 59 times throughout 50 chapters. So basically it shows up more than once per chapter. Uh, you have this emphasis, this reminder of this offspring, this seed who will come. So it's, a, it's, it's definitely a theological book. Genesis is as much theology, and I would argue maybe it's more theology than it is history. Now let's discuss what Genesis is not. First, Genesis is not a science textbook. This is sometimes the fatal error of many who approach this book. You might be thinking I'm exaggerating a little bit when I say fatal error, but I would argue that this is an error that can actually be spiritually fatal. If you approach Genesis as if it is a science textbook explaining every dimension of our existence and everything that we see around us, you can actually cause spiritual damage in the lives of those around you, especially as they start to notice that some of what Genesis says might not align with what they observe in the world around them. If We apply it literalistically. We don't read Genesis in the same way that we read the results, for example, of a peer-reviewed scientific study. They're not the same type of document. It doesn't mean that Genesis is not true. We'll talk about that a lot more, uh, especially next week. It doesn't mean that Genesis is not true. It just means we don't read it. We don't have the same expectations of Genesis as we do of a science textbook. We live with two main types of revelation. This is important. Two ways that we learn about God, that we learn truth. These two types of revelation are often given the title general revelation and special revelation. General revelation is what we learn from that which is around us, what we observe, what creation teaches us about God, about ourselves, about the world. We can these are things that we can observe, that we can test, that we can, that we can experiment with, that we can evaluate success and failure, trial and error to make assumptions about what is true. That's general revelation, looking at our world, looking at what God has created, and making observations and assumptions about what is true, about, uh, about God, about us. And then there's special revelation. And special revelation is that which comes to us directly from God in his word. And both revelations, both types of revelation are true. They are authoritative. Both of them carry weight. Both of them are valuable as we seek to understand 
ourselves and our God and, and the world in which we live. But we approach them differently. We think about them differently. We'll talk about this again in the, in the coming weeks. And so uh, it's sufficient right now for us to say that we don't read Genesis like a science textbook. We treat it as a revelation from God for a specific purpose. And I would argue that the purpose is not scientific, but it is theological. That's important. We'll come back to that. What else is Genesis not? Genesis is not a complete account. Genesis has not given us the entire history of any of the topics that come up in the book. Think, for example, this is, I think, a helpful example. Think about the story of the flood, Noah and the flood. There are so many missing pieces, so many unanswered questions. If you read just that brief, I mean, if this was the cataclysmic event that Genesis portrays it as, there are so many things that are left unanswered, right? Any inquiring mind would have a list of dozens of questions uh, that they would like answered. And Genesis just simply does not provide the answer to those specific questions. Uh, Maybe the greatest example of this, and we'll talk about this next week, uh, is the creation account. God gives, uh, comparatively at least, very little detail about creation. Our God who consistently works through complex and awe-inspiring systems, our God who thought through every detail of his creation, Every single component of his creation is thought through and intentional, right down to the, to the interaction of atoms that Moses had no idea of when he put these words to paper. And yet the entirety of the creation story really comes to us in about 30 verses. Complex, incredibly complex creation that... that Thousands of years later, we can't even begin to wrap our mind around, since, since Moses uh, penned these words, we, we can't even begin to understand creation. I don't know if you've paid attention to, uh, to what's been happening recently, the images that have been coming back uh, from the farthest reaches, that, at least that we're able to see, of the universe. Uh, it, it's amazing what God has done, what God has created. And the, the vastness of his creation comes to us in 30 verses. And so we have to recognize that this is, not a, this is not a complete account. God's not answering every question that we might have uh, about creation in these verses. And that takes us to uh, my third point here, and that's that Genesis is not intended to answer all of your questions. This is frustrating for some of us, right? It's perhaps one of the hardest things for people to come to terms with, I think any of us who have thought deeply about questions of origin, origin of humanity, of the universe, or about social problems, dilemmas that we find ourselves in as humans, any of us who have thought deeply about matters of original sin, for example, uh, struggle with this reality that Genesis simply is not intended to answer all of your questions. Uh, we have to face that Reality, that, that God didn't desire for his word, not just Genesis, but his word in general, uh, to answer some questions that you have. There's no magic code that you can discover that will unlock the secrets of 
Genesis to answer the questions that you might be struggling with. But I think that you'll discover as we work through Genesis that rather than giving us all of the answers, God provides us with a a framework, a a worldview through which we can make sense of what we see. And and I think when we see this worldview, we begin to see that the the, the theological emphasis of Genesis right away in chapter 1, verse 1. So let's turn our attention now as we conclude today uh, to this first verse of the scriptures. This strong declaration. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And, and as we think about those words, I'll share four brief things that I don't want you to miss from this very first verse of the Bible. Uh, Most of these themes are are things that I'll be coming back to, so I'm not going to explore any of these deeply today. This is an introduction. We'll be coming back to these ideas, but I want to give you sort of the lay of the land as we move forward. So so first, as we think about Genesis 1-1, the first thing we see is that God is the beginning. In the beginning... God. Think about what this means. It means that God exists outside of time and matter and creation. It's impossible for us to conceptualize an existence outside of the bounds of time, for example. We, we live our lives, our entire lives, knowing that the sand is slipping through the hourglass on our earthly existence. But, but God's entire existence, exists, God exists entirely outside of the limits of time. He has no beginning and no end. He was, Scripture says, in the beginning. Let that sink in for a minute. He just was. It's nonsensical from a human perspective. Before anything was, God was. The only proper response is humility and worship. And this humility should, and I would say this humility must extend even into our reading of the rest of Genesis chapter 1. There are many Christians who, who, who approach Genesis chapter 1 with, with just this almost prideful, and I would say sometimes arrogant approach. It cannot be. We're talking about a God who just is and always has been. And always will be. And he's revealing to us or attempting to reveal to us, feeble human beings, these realities. We need need humility when we approach passages like this. Eternal God bringing something into existence from nothing. One who lives outside of time, starting the hands of time spinning but 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 not only does god exist outside of time and matter and creation we also see next that god has no origin it sets god apart from every other thing 
that we will ever encounter or see. God has no origin. Everything else that you encounter has something that stands behind it. This building was built by contractors. Children are the miraculous result of human reproduction. Trees came from a seed that was produced by another tree. Clouds in the sky are the product of of water, vapor. Everything that you see, everything that you touch and feel and encounter has an origin, a source, a cause. Except God. He simply, as scripture says, was, and he is, and he always will be. And so that means that God also has no need. We can't comprehend this. God lacks nothing. God is completely sufficient in and of himself. He doesn't need friendship. He doesn't need nourishment. He doesn't need sleep or shelter or literally anything. God has no need. God is the beginning. What else do we see? Second, everything that exists has a purpose. If God is the source of everything, then it logically follows that everything that exists has purpose. This is sort of your philosophy lesson for the day. This doesn't mean that everything that exists is fulfilling its purpose. Something went drastically wrong, right? But it's critical to recognize that that one of the foundational realities of the Christian faith is that everything that exists, all of creation has purpose. Every human being, every animal, every rock formation has purpose because it was designed by a purposeful creator. And of course, right away, one verse in, we see this sharp contrast of worldviews from the world around us. The, the, the baseline understanding, I'll try to, try to help you see this clearly today, the baseline understanding of those who deny the existence of God must be that everything is ultimately meaningless. Nothing has true purpose. We as humans might assign some level of meaning to people, for example, or to the rest of creation, but but ultimately it's all, at the end of the day, it's all a facade if there's no purposeful creator. What what we see is that, that atheism, the denial of God, is a therapeutic worldview. It exists as therapy to get us through it, it attempts to allow us to escape accountability for how we choose to use and invest and spend our lives. It's the product of an attempt to to justify self-worship and egocentrism. But ultimately, the atheist must agree that there is no ultimate moral, transcendent value to anything that we see around us. It's all a cosmic accident. And we're left to make the best of it. That's the worldview. When the scriptures declare that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, they also declare that every person 
that you meet, every created thing that you encounter has purpose and intrinsic value because it was fashioned by an intentional creator. What else does Genesis 1 tell us? Third, we see that God is always sovereign over his creation. I'll talk more about this in coming weeks, but it's helpful to declare it from the beginning that the scriptures don't allow us to view God as the deists do, as if God sort of spun this thing into motion and went on vacation and will come back someday and see how it all turned out in the end. That's not how scripture presents the creator God. We see a God who not only designs with intention, but rules with love and purpose. He, he reigns sovereign over his creation. All things are in his hands. He is above all. He sees all. He knows all. His purposes will ultimately be brought to their fullness. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So let's review. God is the beginning. Everything that exists has purpose. God is always sovereign over his creation. And fourth and finally, we see that Jesus is present at creation. This verse in Colossians chapter 1 that I think is an important uh, sort of side reading anytime we think about Genesis chapter 1. Listen to what Paul writes in Colossians chapter 1, starting in verse 15. Paul says, He, speaking of Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And then listen to what Paul says. For by him... By Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created, and then listen to these words, through him, all things were created through Jesus and for Jesus. And he is before all things, And in him, in Jesus, all things hold together. So so Jesus is God made visible, and Jesus is the one, Scripture tells us, through whom all things were created. And this is very important for two reasons. And I'll close with this. First, this is important because we must read Genesis Christologically. We must read Genesis as if, Christ is the center because the scriptures tell us that he is. During our time in Genesis, we will see imagery and examples and symbols and types that reveal Christ to us over and over. The the New Testament teaches us that the only proper way to read Genesis is to realize that Jesus is there and is central. And second, this is important because the one whose hands fashioned the universe out of nothing. The one who, through whom and for whom all things were created, loved you enough to die on a hill that he fashioned, hanging from a wooden cross that he caused to grow, held on by nails made of iron that he designed, That Jesus, the one who holds all things together, died for you in your place. He is the the covering applied in the garden to cover up sin. He's the serpent crusher in Genesis 3. 
He's the ark that carries Noah's family to safety. He's the ram caught in the thicket at Mount Moriah. He's the one who would be betrayed by those closest to him and sold to the enemy. Jesus is the one who was exalted from the prison to the right hand of the supreme ruler. Jesus is all over the pages of Genesis. And it's my prayer that during our time in this book, as we see the intentionality of God in his creation and in his redemption, and as we see the Savior so clearly and profoundly that we will be led to worship the Lord, to rest in his grace and mercy shown to us in Christ. Let's pray. God, we confess, we believe that in the beginning you created the heavens and the earth. We believe that you are the beginning. We believe that everything that exists has purpose because you have created it with purpose. We believe that you are always and forever sovereign over your creation. And we are so grateful for the reminder today that not only did you create, but you also redeemed us. Lord, as we spend this school year in the book of Genesis, may we be richly blessed by your word, by the promise of your love, by the hope of your redemption. We pray these things in Jesus' name, the one through whom and for whom all things were created and the one in whom all things hold together. Amen.